good to be with you. My name is Kurt Parker. It's a blessing to be able to worship together with you and have fellowship. You have little ones all the way through grade six. You'd like them to be in Sunday school right now during this time while you're worshiping up here. You can have them dismissed uh, to the foyer. Our director CE will be there to meet them and they will go down and be in, uh, in classes that will teach them to their grade level and we'd love for you to do that or keep them with you if you'd like. We're going to be in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to pick up again. It's been a joy um, doing all the things we do around the holidays and remembering uh, the advent of Christ and the incarnation in which we did. And we just enjoyed all that time together. And we had a couple of special speakers during that time to allow me to be with family as well. And so I'm very grateful that the Lord has given us many men to do that. But uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. It's our, as our habit, we're going to read this whole chapter and allow the Holy Spirit to go to work in our lives through the Word. If you're new here today, if it's been a while since you've been here and you've missed some, don't think somehow you're not going to be with us just because we've studied verse by verse through these two books. Uh, as we explain the Word, it's always a blessing. You always come away with what you need in order, to, um, in order to be right where the Lord wants you to be and to be encouraged. And so we're going to do that. And it's, of course, it's my prayer that, that you've been in the Word each day this week, so that this is not new for you as we uh, dig into the Word today. So if you haven't been in the Word this week, you're starving this morning, and that's not how the Lord wants you to live your spiritual life. You need daily, uh, a daily influx of His Word to feast. And so if you have not been doing that, let this year be the year you start reading through the Bible cover to cover. In the foyer, you can pick up a trifold that can take you through and a calendar, or you can go to Version. I encourage you this all the time. Go to Version, establish a, an account, and then uh, pick one of the Bible reading calendars that will take you through cover to cover this year. And then all the richness of reading the Word that way will be your yours. Uh, you'll understand the holy standard that the Lord expects you to hold before you. You'll understand uh, His plan for you as it has not changed. And you'll also understand the blessings that have come as a result of God sending His Son, and you'll be able to praise Him for that. So be in the Word, and the blessings of that will be yours. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 10, 1. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. You can read that if you want. It's around you in the chairs. Or just read from what you normally study and, and uh, memorize, and I'll just give you verse cues, and we'll stay together. It starts, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, verse 2, I ask that, when I am present, I do not need to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, verse 4, for, weapon, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is in Christ, that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Verse 8, for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Verse 9, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or to compare ourselves with some 
of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Verse 14, for we were not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with a hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. Verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Verse 18, for it is not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Let's stop right there. As we move into this passage, we get to verses 3 and 4, and you probably noticed, uh, most likely you recognize them as some of the most often quoted verses related to spiritual battles. That really is the essence of these next three chapters. It's spiritual warfare, and, and I've just subtitled it, Instructions in Winning. Winning the Spiritual War. Winning is pretty important. It's a pretty important outcome in our culture. Uh, of course, lately, it's on some shaky ground with our social justice warriors. In fact, the politic politic politically correct and the social justice warriors really in charge of the public narrative, it's many times viewed as a negative. Winning's a negative. You know, it's um, perhaps less emphasized over the everyone gets a participation trophy award. That's more important, I think, now than somebody winning. Or it's, it's someone else's fault and why I can't win scenario and someone has the privilege that I don't have. That's why I can't win. And it's important. And so I think, though, that um, Scripture doesn't agree with that position. It, it really is important about, it, it places some importance on winning. And I, I would tell you probably that um, football coaches in general don't fall into that category either. Right? Has that been your experience? A few years, there's an article a few years ago from uh, Seattle Times staff that illustrates that for us. They put together some of their favorite all-time quotes by college coaches relating to playing and relating to winning. And many of these guys are retired, some have passed away, but here's a sample. Uh, John McKay, USC, we didn't tackle well today, but we made up for it by not blocking. Um, Newt Rockney, Notre Dame, the only qualification for a lineman the, the qualification for alignment is to be big and dumb. To be a back, you only have to be dumb. Eric Russell at Georgia Southern. At Georgia Southern, we don't cheat. That costs money. We don't have any. Woody Hayes back in the day at Ohio State. As we think about trying to score, three things can happen when you pass the ball, and two of them are bad. Football is not a contact sport. Duffy Dougherty from Michigan State says it's a collision sport. Dancing is a contact sport. Football is a collision sport. Chuck Jordan from Auburn, always remember Goliath was a 40-point favorite over David. Bob Devaney from Nebraska, I, I don't want to win enough to be placed on an NCAA probation. I just want to win enough to warrant an investigation. That's my favorite one. If lessons are learned in defeat, Murray Warmath from Minnesota said, uh, our team is getting a great education. Frank Lehigh from Notre Dame, if we want to win, you have to come to practice, lads, and you're not to miss practice unless your parents died or you died. That's just a few of those. You know, I, I don't think they take the whole, hey, it's not okay, you know, it's okay not to win idea that's so popular. And with football, we find the word of God does not undervalue winning either. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. 
Apostle Paul says, uh, as he told the church of Philippi, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul wasn't content in just getting a participation award, was he? He wanted the prize, and he pushed hard to make that happen. And that's not isolated. First Corinthians 9, 19, remember Paul said, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. What was his, what was his focus there? Winning more to Christ. Winning more. Paul was willing to go to any length, any discomfort, any effort to win more people to Christ. Just a few verses later, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, he said, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And as you think about that passage, you think about Paul understanding how the games work and that people who win are the ones who train the hardest. They're the ones who have self-control in all things. And then they do that just to take home a wreath that will eventually fade and they'll throw it away. Paul says, in the same way, Someone who has Christ as their Savior is to labor for the prize. And this prize doesn't fade away. It goes with you, but the same things apply. Discipline, hard work, obeying the rules. Those are the things he said that you're to do because you're supposed to labor to do the best you can possibly do. Give what it takes to win it. Uh, Paul told his son in the faith, 2 Timothy 2.5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes what? according to the rules. So it's possible to work hard but not do it according to the rules and you don't get the prize. It's the same with, as your walk with the Lord. See, You live your life to win the prize. You don't want to be disqualified in the process or uh, prompt an NCAA investigation. This issue of winning according to God's standard in the spiritual realm is an important one. It's illustrated as a race. It's illustrated as a contest, as a war, as boxing, and any other number of things. In fact, when Paul came to the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good, what? Fight. He looked back over his life and he realized that it was a battle. He, he, it had been an incessant, unrelenting battle. In fact, he told Timothy in the very same epistle that he viewed himself as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, one who had suffered hardship in the battle and was fighting loyally to please the one who had enlisted him as a soldier, his Lord. In 2 Timothy 2.3, suffer hardship with me, he told Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ. He battled all the way through his life, from the beginning of his conversion all the way to the end, it was a war. He never battled for personal honor. He wasn't looking for recognition. He battled to win the spiritual fight that is the Christian life. See. For Paul, it was against his own countrymen sometimes uh, and, and those that attacked him in the church and caused strife. There's spiritual warfare there, the troubles of an apostle, pastoring, teaching, those who resisted those kinds of ministries, troubles from hardships of living in the world, troubles from sorrow, troubles from discouragement, of just being down. And because those types of contests endure today, see, and we still have the same kinds of things on us today, the passages are, I think, just as relevant now as they were in the first century church. And so these passages are, are very pertinent and, and very central to understanding how we're to approach spiritual conflict, and that's Paul's emphasis. So as we come to chapters, really, 10 through 13, spiritual conflict comes to the forefront. In chapters 1 through 9, you know, we, Paul is dealing with the church that had reconciled with him. Remember, we talked about all of that. Uh, they had submitted to his instruction, and as we saw, there was a lot of hope and relief, and the church at large had been encouraged and, and had encouraged Titus by their willingness to, to walk with the Lord. But you can still notice a change in these last three chapters 
there's still some determining uh, opposition against Paul in the church and his instruction concerning the spiritual temperament of the church. There's some resistance there and opposition to Paul himself. And so he's going to make this change and, uh, and really affect that whole thing in these last three chapters. Now, the opponents are Jewish Christians. They put themselves forward as apostles of Christ. They prized eloquent speech. They thought that was fantastic and, and most important at the top of the list. They, they wanted displays of authority and visions and revelations. Uh, the performance of mighty works was important to them. That's the signs of a true apostle. We saw that in, in 1 Corinthians 14, didn't we? They wanted to speak in tongues. They wanted to make sure people noticed. And even to the point where people had to write Paul and say, you know, is this spiritual? Should we be doing this? You know, and then Paul had to clarify what actual spirituality was. So these, no doubt, uh, men had been there the whole time who were causing the trouble there. Uh, St. Paul, though, really reinstated in the affections of the church. His authority reestablished to some extent. I'm sure that, that uh, affected them a little bit. And they kind of sunk below the radar. But the guys have really reignited some of the previous fires concerning Paul's validity and his integrity as an apostle. And so that trouble is there. Paul knows it's there. And so, as you know from previous passages, against his preference, Paul doesn't want to do this. Paul has to provide a strong personal defense. So he hates to do that. He has to point out where his attackers are wrong. And that's exhausting. And it really rings him out. But Paul probably had come to the ministry, like most people do, full of ideals, convinced that the church would willingly receive instruction from the Word of God and happily walk in it. And I say in the modern church now, we shouldn't have expected that because if that's what had happened, we wouldn't have all these books in the New Testament. We wouldn't have the pastoral epistles. We wouldn't have these letters to the churches. But Paul probably came with that same idea. Uh, after he'd been instructed by the Lord, he's going to come. They're going to want to hear this. They're going to want to walk with the Lord. He led many of them to the Lord. And so uh, little did he know when he launched this ministry in Corinth over the first 18 months or so that he would have to engage in a battle that went on for years and, and not, just, not just individual things, to preserve the truth in that place, to keep it from being kicked to pieces, just to keep the naysayers and the gossipers and the criticizers from derailing everything because that's what happens, see. He heard they were having trouble after he left, so he writes the first letter. And we don't have that. And I've told you this, and I'll just kind of sum it up. But 1 Corinthians indicates there was a writing of a previous letter. We don't have it, so we understand that it was given to them. The Lord didn't preserve it for us. And then he writes a second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and so that has some correcting effect for some, but not for all. And so he has to write a severe letter. We don't have that either. We know that it was sent in this letter. We know that it was sent with Titus. And Titus takes it, and he delivers it. And although Paul's hopeful, there's some question about whether the church will ever come back to where it needs to be. And Paul has done all he can do physically to make that happen and to instruct them. And so he just relies on this severe letter. He doesn't know what the response is going to be. And then we find out uh, that it was received, as we said, and, and with repentance and contriteness, Paul is reunited with Titus and he's relieved. So the question is, why does he write 2 Corinthians? And, and we've answered this, so just briefly, he writes 2 Corinthians because he knows something that any good soldier knows, any good leader knows. And that is that though a rebellion has been for the moment ended, vestiges of it can still be found in a lot of places. And just some illustrations. He knew that the toxic stream of, 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 the, of the gossip and the envy and the strife and all that had been pushed underground, but it wasn't very deep. So he knew it was still going to be there. The same problems the church has, they continue to have. It typically stays there right in the church. You can have to deal with it. He knew there was still some, some glowing embers, if you will, from a fire of accusation that was against him in some little places in some corners, and they were ready to spring back into, into a flame. And so uh, at the first opportunity, he knew there were false teachers still there. 
still resistance to his leadership, still people who were going to gossip, still people who were going to complain. He knew it was going to there, and maybe they were just out of sight for temporarily, but he's going to have to deal with this. And so he writes 2 Corinthians, and when we get to chapter 10, he's still revealing his heart, because we saw in verses, uh, chapters 1 through 9, he's very open, wasn't he? You know, he talked about his sorrow, he talked about his comfort, he talked about how, you know, the Lord comforted him, and we got to learn from that example of how to deal with these kinds of things. Uh, and uh, he's going to come, though, in, in chapter 10, and, and he's revealing his heart, but he has to do some hard things, too. And that's what we're going to see. And, and Paul is going to come back to the church, he tells him he's going to come back, and so in chapters 10 through 13, this is a warning to those people still holding on to rebellious attitudes, uh, that when he gets there, if it's still like that, he's going to have to straighten it out. When he comes back, he's coming back ready for whatever he has to do. And he's coming back, and it says, with weapons of warfare that are divinely powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. So he's going to come in with the word of God on his lips and clearly with authority as an elder and an overseer. He's going to straighten all of that out, you see. It says he's going to come back and allow the word to reveal and punish all disobedience. He's going to come back, to be clear, and allow the word to destroy everything lifted up against the knowledge of God. And that's a really strong section of Scripture. There's going to be a lot of, of pleas along with it. There's going to be threats of disciplinary action at the same time. There's going to be personal defense, which he hates to do, and a satirical attack against his opponents. He's going to point out the, the absurdity of, of what has been said in comparison to his own life. We're going to see expressions of deep concern about the state of his converts and, and really pointed contrast between the nature of his own mission and his life and those who oppose him. And nobody wants to have to do that. You don't want to use yourself as an illustration of what you're supposed to do. So we're going to see Paul call this, you know, his fool's speech. We're going to see that later as he defends himself and he, and he says why you should be listening. He just calls it his fool's speech where he parades all of his credentials. He hates to do it. And then he cites his impeccable Jewish ancestry, some of the history of the ministry that he's had over the years, things he's done and things he's had to suffer, things he's been allowed to see, you know, like his visions, his revelations that he experienced, all of those things that we'll see. And, and exclusively for Paul's sake, as opposed to a modern under-shepherd, Paul can remind his readers that he had performed the signs of a true apostle to them, even though it perhaps doesn't make much difference. He warns them that he's about to make his third visit to Corinth, and he expresses his concern that when he comes this third time, he might find some of them still caught up in immorality and in rebellion and in gossip and all that, and he assures his readers that those who demand proof of his apostolic authority will get exactly what they're asking for. So again, a very, a very uh, strong section, and he's not going to spare them, and so it's, it's not what we're used to hearing in 2 Corinthians, but, and hard to read, hard to hear, and hard to understand. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage, and, and we'll, we'll, as we're introducing it, we'll just get into verse 1, and that's going to show us how he starts. And what we're going to do, as we normally do, verse by verse as we teach this, we give some handholds to the passage that helps us understand where Paul's headed, and we can extract those things and learn from them. If Paul's the example, follow me, he said, as I follow Christ, then if he acts a certain way in a certain situation, we can see that that is the way we're supposed to act. And we always look at that, so that's what we're going to do again. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It's going to start this way. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. You look at that verse, it starts with now, and just look at that word for a moment. It really signifies a break in thought. It signifies a clean break. It, it signifies a fresh line of writing, a new subject. It's kind of a stamp that kind of separates everything off. It, it, it sets off the final section. He's finished talking about offering, and, and the offering was a very specific matter, and Paul had cashed in on his equity with the church. They had reconciled with him, so he wanted to make sure 
that he was able to teach them what New Testament giving looks like. He wants to make sure that they participate. They started. He wants to make sure they finish. He's going he's to encourage them to grow and do these kinds of things and worship this way. Very specific teaching. And then he comes to this crescendo, crescendo benediction. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Remember, he, he ends that way. And we pointed out that was an appropriate way to conclude uh, the instruction on giving. Why? Give the way God gives. In other words, God was sacrificial. Uh, God was generous. And then he says, give that way. And then he turns to this final subject, and he says, now. So you can see he's set that aside. Now he's moving on. And, and you can see maybe him take a breath. You know, he got through with all that. It was fun to teach that. It was fun to point that out. What they, and he fully expected them to, per, to, to give the offering. And that, we saw that that's what happened. And he just takes this big breath because he knows he's moving into this next section. It's going to be hard. And, and maybe he takes a break, and he goes somewhere and does something else for a minute. Anytime you have to do something hard, anytime you have to do a, write a difficult letter, a spiritual reproving, if you will, you have to get yourself ready. So maybe he did. Sometimes you, you write it over and over in your head before you ever write it the first time. Of course, Paul's being carried along by God's breath, so that's not happening. Paul is saying exactly what God wants him to say, but that doesn't make it easy. Even if you're saying the things the Lord uh, has instructed you to say, it's not easy to do it, and you know it's going to be a battle. And so he uh, probably didn't write it a few times, but he's, it's still hard, and he starts off with now, and then he says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he appeals to them through Jesus, I, Paul, myself. Typically, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Almost exclusively, every time he starts his writings or a new topic, he'll say that. But we don't have that here. We hear, we, hear, we see I, Paul, myself. And what they had done is they questioned his authority. Uh, they questioned his right to speak for God. He had every right to come in there and say, I, Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, reprove you in the name of the Lord. But he didn't start that way. He says, I, Paul, and then they had questioned his message, how he goes about the ministry, uh, the way he goes about instructing the church. Every single thing that he could have done, literally complaining about every process, every single thing, see, he questioned his apostleship, questioned his leaders, his credentials as an elder. He's under attack. It's all under dispute, and it's just a difficult time for him. And he could have come in and just waited in and just said what he could have said. But instead, he says, I, Paul, myself. And before he comes in with this directness, he says, I, and mark this, he says, I urge you. That's, that's the word, the verb parakaleo. And we understand that word. Parakaletos is the word that describes the Holy Spirit the helper who comes alongside. Here he uses it in verb form, and, and it's literally to call to one side. The meaning in the root, if you understand it, you, it has the idea of imploring or pleading with them. I, Paul, beg you. I'm coming alongside, and I'm saying to you, please, come back from this. And th this is really the first instruction here, and you can see that behind me. We're going to pull this from Paul's attitude when he comes to spiritual warfare. The very first thing, we already know the history of the church. We already know the history of the people. We already know the things that they've said about him. We understand the undercurrent that continues to be there. Okay? And still he comes. As he starts it off, he always comes with humility. And this is his attitude with spiritual warfare, whether it's with people uh, or, or in the spiritual realm or circumstances. Uh, it's going to start with attitude. And this word really indicates humility on Paul's part. And the idea here is that before Paul comes in wielding his apostolic authority, he says, you know, I, Paul, myself, oh, I beg you, I beseech you, I urge you, please listen. I'm imploring you to end this rebellion. I'm pleading with you to be reconciled. I'm begging you for real peace. He has no desire to be firm. 
has no desire for open conflict, so he begs them and shows humility again. And we see this over and over with Paul, don't we? Even though, and get this, even though they're probably going to ridicule him for it, at least the instigators, for being that way. And it's not that Paul doesn't have any authority in the church. He does. So he begs. He has authority, but he starts here, and, he's, and starting here, he says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, urge you, and then he says this, important, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Periotetos. Meekness is the noun. It's the, it's the fruit of the Spirit. We've seen it. It's the second instruction that we pull from Paul. Again, it has to do with attitude when it comes to spiritual warfare. This is the spiritual fruit of meekness. It refers to power under control. That's typically the way it is, it is uh, defined. It's the attitude which expresses itself in the patient endurance of offenses. That's what it is. You have the power to react, but you don't. Your power is under control, and you're enduring it. And, and there's been quite a few offenses against Paul here. Of course, those two who had done the offending probably would say that Paul was the offensive one. That's typically how that works. People who are offensive tend to think it's the other person. There's been quite a few, and, and it's likely that many who are offensive in the church are the ones who would accuse Paul of being offensive and overbearing and, and are openly critical of him. But he's, he's kept his authority under control, and he's kept his power under control. And then his next word is very much like it. He says, by the meekness and gentleness, epioketa, that's the noun that has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. And this is instruction number three that helps win spiritual warfare. And this is where it's all got to start. It's going to start with humility. It's going to start with power and control. And then it's going to start with gentleness. It's a spiritual fruit. It means when applied to someone in authority, it means leniency. It means leniency. You have the right to do some certain thing, and it's a clear offense, and there's a straight line of dealing with it, and it's leniency. Patient submission in the midst of mistreatment, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of disgrace, without anger, without malice, without revenge. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Paul says. And, and even though you have the power to retaliate, see, gentleness says you don't. That's what it means. And I think it's important to mention as a footnote, as we've said, these are fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means these are fruits that we're supposed to portray. Does it make sense to you? This is, this is what it's supposed to look like, see. If you want the fruit of the Spirit to, to be prevalent in your life, and I pray this a lot in my own personal life, Lord, help the fruit of the Spirit to be clear in my life and then I go through them and think about my own actions my own thought life how I'm dealing with people how I'm dealing with my family all that kind of fruit of the spirit needs to be there and you having that discussion shows that you're Christ's see because the world's not having that discussion they're not figuring out how to be meek and gentle and all that but you're having that discussion as you're in the word and this is important why you should be in the word each day you begin to say okay how am I doing in this how's the fruit looking see and then you can ask the Lord to help you. You can ask for forgiveness, whatever it is. Thank the Lord for making that clear, for controlling your, your temper, whatever it is. But these are fruits of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. Paul says, he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul appeals to Christ and says, this, this, is, the, this is the characterization of the, of the gifts that Jesus displayed more than anyone else. So he's the standard. He was humble, wasn't he? And we read this earlier, Philippians 2.7. Jesus emptied himself, which means he laid aside his rights. That's how that works. When you empty yourself in this context, he laid aside all of his rights. Every, all authority that he had, he set it aside, taking the form of a bondservant, so a, a, literally a, a table waiter, being made in the likeness of men, 
being found in the appearance of a man, just three terrible things for someone who ruled since, the, since forever in eternity past, someone who created everything, took the form of a bondservant, set aside and emptied himself, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. He, and here's our word, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing that, God exalted him highly for his own glory. And that mind is supposed to be where? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it's supposed to be there so God can bring glory to himself. When this is here, humility is there, then God is able to bring glory to himself. And in starting that way, Paul was able to put himself in a position so that whatever happened next, whatever level he had to take it, God would get the glory. He started with humility. See, Jesus came as a humble bondservant, obedient to a substitutionary death on the cross for your sake. But here's the question. When he returns, is he still coming back just like that? Is he going to be a humble bondservant, obedient to death on the cross? Oh, no. So starting that way doesn't mean the authority is stripped away. You understand that. He paved the way for all men to repent by giving himself as a bondservant and substitutionary death on the cross. But those who don't repent, what happens? He comes back with a rod, and the book of Revelation makes that pretty clear, doesn't it? And Jesus gave really a small glimpse of him coming back with a rod when he went into the temple. And what did he do? Overthrew the money changers, used a whip. And they're like, where would you get that authority? Except nobody said that out loud. Because they could understand that, couldn't they? So the two fruit of the Spirit, meekness and gentleness, you know, is there anyone who's embodied that, the spirit of those things, more than Jesus? No one's more powerful, here it is, no one's more powerful than Christ, and yet no one had a better harness on that power. No one had that power under control better. No one had better judgment and discernment of the faults of the people around him. So he actually knew for sure, we're, we're always a little unsure, right, exactly what's going on in somebody else's life. He, there was no question there what was going on, particularly with those who were crucifying him, and yet he showed more leniency, didn't he? And even more amazing, he took on himself the almighty power and judgment of God as a retaliation on sin. He took that on himself. He shielded all mankind from the, from the wrath of God and put it on himself and kept his own retaliation on sin in check during his first visit. And that's Paul's starting point. He says, I want to be like my Lord. I want to be humble. I want to be gentle. I want to be meek. And even though you've mistreated me, you've maligned me, you've turned against me, I have no anger, I, got, I have no bitterness, I have no malice. Even though you've disgraced me, and you've shamed my name, and you've shamed the Lord, and you've shamed the gospel, I want to be patient with you. There's another great illustration of that, which, which helps us to understand Paul's approach. It's, it's found in First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 19, and I'd like you to turn there. We're going to spend the rest of our time, we've got about 10 minutes left, and we'll, we're going to wrap up with this, but... Peter is teaching about the same thing, and I think it's very apropos for us to see how it applies to every single individual. It's not just for leaders and churches or whatever. This is how it's supposed to we're supposed to approach life. This is what these fruits of the Spirit are supposed to look like. But 1 Peter 2.19, I'll wrap up our thoughts today with this. But verse 19 says this, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under the sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, God is pleased when you suffer unjustly and you endure it. So the question is, do you want to find favor with God? A special attention, a special preference from God to you? We know that he does this. We saw it earlier, didn't we, in chapters 8 and 9? 
an open-handedness from God to you, a special love. God loves a cheerful giver. So you want to find favor with God? You want to have a special attention from him? And he's not constrained by time, so he can give you all the attention you need, can't he? You realize that, right? You're not in line in a really, really long line of billions of people waiting to get up to the front so you can have your 10 minutes with the Lord. He's not constrained by time or space and can give you all the time you need. And we see particularly for this, finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God. So you're remembering that these are the fruits of the Spirit he wants you to have. If a person bears up under, uh, under sorrows when suffering, here it is, unjustly. You want to find favor, special attention, special preference. You get that when you don't retaliate. That's what that means. You get it when you're not angry and you believe you have the right to be. You get it when you avoid the dislike and the resentment and the desire for justice or revenge or whatever, or listing off somebody's faults. See, Because God's pleased when you endure it. And now Peter wants to be clear, so he says in verse 20, look there. For what credit is there, and, and that's a rhetorical question, there's what? None. If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure that with patience. So if you've sinned and you get harshly treated, there's no particular virtue in that if you bear up under it because you deserve it. That's the whole point. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, mark it, this finds favor with God. Now, beloved, this, this is a level of spiritual maturity. The fruit of the Spirit being manifest in your body. It's not some special place that one or two people get. This is where everybody's supposed to be. If the Holy Spirit's residing in your body, then fruits of the Spirit begin to show, and these are some of them, see. When you're mistreated, when you're misrepresented, when you're gossiped about, when you're slandered, and people think they know about you and all your faults, but they don't, and all your missteps, but they don't, and, you, and you're reviled, and all that stuff was happening to Paul at the hands of the church, when it happens to you, and like Paul, you're the leader, or you, you're following the word in your leadership, and this stuff is happening, and you suffer quietly, and you patiently endure it, God's delighted, and he's well-pleased, and he has a special preference for you. And that's important. And I would think that that's where we'd all like to be, right? I mean, it's the fruit of the Spirit, supposed to be born out of the Holy Spirit in your life, and then God rewards it by saying, you've got my special attention when you're like this. And I think we'd like to be there rather than being right. See, we're, we're a lot more familiar and comfortable with being right. We're a lot more familiar with, in our, if, at least in our perception, if we've been wronged. But I want to make sure that somebody else knows we've been wronged and why we've been wronged and what they did about it, uh, why, we, why it happened anyway. See, we're really good at that, very bad at just being content. See, And just a heads up from verse 21, look there. For you have been called for this purpose. Uh-oh. You've been called for this purpose. The Lord has intent for you to have these spiritual gifts manifest in your life. See, so Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What's that mean? Well, here it is. You might well learn to deal with it because that's part of being a Christian. You have to expect it. He wants you to follow in Christ's steps, which means that there are probably plenty of people that he's lined up to make sure that you do. So if you failed that test the last time around, I would imagine he has somebody else in line to make sure they falsely accuse you and you get another chance to react with spiritual fruit of meekness and kindness. And, and you can probably think of a few of those names, can't you, right now? 
But you have to be careful where you go with your thoughts after that because then you have to sit here and confess and repent while we're trying to talk to you about the Word of God. So, you know, but you know who those are, people are, who the Lord has arranged in your life to make your life difficult, and they've done things that were, were unjust, and they falsely accused you, and they didn't know the whole story, but they did it, and you just bear under it, see? And when you do that, that finds special favor with the Lord. And, and on top of the spiritual battles that come inside the church, which is what we're talking about here, when you live counter to the culture, when you live in an alien, as an alien in the world, and, and hopefully this first week of 2021 has confirmed that for you, has it confirmed that you're an alien in this world? Have you watched the news and just thought, I am so not at home here. This is not my kingdom. And you're grateful for that, aren't you? I, I was very much grateful that this is not my kingdom. And this whole falling apart thing we see going on here is the Lord arranging for us to be caught away. And, and I'm very content with that, see? I'm upset about the injustice. I'm upset about false accusations. I'm upset about all the stuff that's going on, but I'm mostly rejoicing that this isn't my kingdom, see? But when you live like you should live and, and you give out the gospel, everything in the system is going to be hostile towards you. You can expect to be called into unjust suffering. You can expect to be harassed and lectured. I uh, love that. Don't you, on, on social media, getting lectured by a non-believer? Oh, you talk about, you know, God and salvation and all that, and, and he loves life, but what about all the slavery in the Old Testament? You know, what about this and that? And I just, I, w- I want to say, oh, wow, God's probably sitting up in heaven going, oh, you really got me there? I didn't think that was going to come. I forgot I, I made a mistake, you know? <laughs> just hate getting lectured by people. But it, you should expect that. The society's going to do that to you in various forms and various degrees. But here's the impetus, impetus for the instruction here in Peter. Look at verse 22. So, for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 22, who, this is Jesus, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In other words, when you think about spiritual warfare, as it has to do with people, especially as a leader in a church as Paul was, and false accusation, mark this, beloved, mark it. No one ever suffered as unjustly as Jesus did. Because we have sinned, and deceit has come from our mouth, and we can still suffer unjustly, correct? I mean, deceit has come from your mouth and mine. Falsehood has come from your mouth and mine. Sinfulness has been in our life, no question. We're not perfect, and we can still suffer unjustly. Here's the thing. He suffered unjustly and was perfect, which makes his unjust suffering even worse. You get that, right? Of all the suffering that's gone on, unjustly, Jesus is at the top of the pile. Okay, you might say, you know, you know, I've been beat up pretty badly myself or whatever, and if you've served in the ministry anywhere, you can definitely say that. But no one has suffered like Jesus because we've all sinned and we had to see it come from our mouth and we're messing up. But Jesus didn't, see. He suffered unjustly and was perfect. And so he sets the example. And, and mark the answer to this question in your mind. At whose hands did he suffer the most unjustness? And what's the answer? His own people. People who would be considered religious. People who would call themselves by God's name. He suffered mostly from their hand. What's the example from Jesus? Okay, so he suffered the most. So he's at the top of the pile. The best example of what it looks like to suffer unjustly because there was no deceit and no sin. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. So he kept it under control. Did he have a right to revile back? Did he have the authority to revile back? Of course he did. Would he have been right? Of course he would have been. He did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats. Oh, you can do this to me now, but just wait until I come back. 
What did he see on the cross? Father turned the angels loose on them. Wow. It wouldn't have had to be angels. It only needed to be one. Father, give them a letter listing off all the wrongs they've ever committed against me. Everything that they do that I know is wrong. Did he do that? No. No. Did he have the right to do that? Absolutely. Were they worthy of those things? No question. Did he do it? No. He said, Father, what? Forgive them. And then we get into a glimpse of this process. How does he do that? How can I do that? When people, they say false things against me, you just want to correct all of that. You don't understand where you're coming from. You can see Paul, you know, you're so wrong about him in so many different ways and so unkind constantly. How did Jesus do it? Here it is. The last part of verse 23. He didn't revile in return, and when he was suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Whose opinion mattered most to Christ? The Lord's evaluation. And that's how we do that, right? Paul, Paul and he said this many times to church, it doesn't really matter what you say about me. It matters what Christ says about me. In fact, at the end of this chapter, didn't he just say that? It's not who approves himself. It's who God approves. And Christ just kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The one who doesn't forget anything. The one who writes it all down. The one who records every word, every thought, every deed. He could, he could trust himself to that. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. So he was humble, he was meek, he was gentle, he quietly bore our sins to the cross, and you have the ability to interact this way too because he bore your sin in his body on the cross so that we might, what, die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. See, you can die to sin. You don't have to react in the way the rest of the world reacts. You don't have to say what's right when you know somebody's falsely accusing you. You don't have to. And when you don't and you bear quietly up under it, what do you get? A special attention from the Lord, a special favor from the Lord. Paul says, I came to you with the same meekness and gentleness of Christ. I come to you with a forbearing patience. I come to you enduring all the slander against me. I come to you with leniency. I come to you without anger and without malice. I come to you patiently. He wasn't ignorant of the character of his Lord, and he wanted to be just like that. He knew the character of his Lord was the standard for all soldiers. He knew that he could entrust himself to the Lord who, who judges all things rightly. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what's the rest? Gentle and humble in heart. So Paul knew the ministry is a battle. He, understand how, he understood how he had to come towards this difficult time, and so we take that as our example. It didn't undermine the authority Paul had. He still had the right to correct. He still had the right to reprove. He, he did that, but he wanted to make sure that they understood, I'm begging you, be reconciled. I'm begging you, fix this. He knew it's a battle. He knew it's a race. It's a contest. It's a boxing. It's a war. That's why we came to the end of his life. I fought the good what? Fight. Is, you know, we want to be there, beloved. You want to fight the good fight. And that's going to require you to do things differently, perhaps, than your nature would, would indicate you want to do. Paul looked back over his life. He realized it was a battle. It had been incessant, unrelenting, and the Lord had developed in him by sanctification, the same process he's using on you and me, the character of a great soldier. And he wasn't looking, market for the earliest opportunity to come to blows. 
He wasn't looking for the earliest opportunity to just set everything right and make sure you know what's right, see? He considered that the last possible choice. That's how Paul starts this section. Ministry is hard. Spiritual warfare is hard. He's going to show us how to go about it in the right way, and we're going to continue to dig a lot further next time, Lord willing. And we'll see how even responding like Paul did and, and doing it that way, people are still cruel. And we're going to see this next time. They manipulated his unwillingness to chase everything down. You know, all the things that were said wrong about him, he didn't chase it down, so it perpetuates itself, and people believe the false things. He didn't chase it down, so it's still out there. See, his patience, his endurance, his kindness, they took advantage of all that, and they classified it as weakness, see, or guiltiness. And Paul refers to that when he says in this last part of verse 1, we saw it, I, Paul, now I, Paul, who am meek when face-to-face with you, the bold toward you when absent. That's sheer sarcasm. He's just repeating what they say about him. You're saying this about me. Remember me, Paul? This is what you've been saying? Simply repeating their accusation. This is sarcasm. Or verse 10, for, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. How, how unkind is that? This is a Paul who's going to come in humility and say, I beg you, please, please come alongside. Please have peace. Stop kicking the ministry to pieces with your, with your ungodly attitude, your backbiting, your, your, uh, your gossiping. In spite of all that, Paul's still going to show us how to follow the biblical directive and the examples. And through all of that, allow us then, as we've been doing today, to receive some instruction on how to live a victorious life when faced with spiritual battles. A life in which God will be well pleased. Let's close in a word of prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of being together. It's so, uh, such a joy to my own heart, I know to others who... To, to be together as believers, to rejoice in, in worship and to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, to be part of something you established with your, through your son when he came to earth and still going strong now. Lord, we're so grateful we can do it. And we're grateful, too, we can be in a long tradition of just reading your word. Uh, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? Very simply, it doesn't have to be some clever concoction by the speaker, just strictly what does the word say? How can we understand that to apply to us? And Lord, I pray you continue to guide us in those areas and help us to be reprints of your son. We desire to be conformed. We're not teaching this in a vacuum. We're teaching this so we can understand how Paul actually lived and how we're required to live as we're given that, uh, those spiritual fruit. It applies to everyone. And what a joy the church becomes when these things uh, become to the forefront. Meekness, gentleness. Even if you're wronged. So Lord, I pray that you'll do your work in us as we always desire for you to. But through your word, I will be conformed in your image, and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen.